Section 15 of The Descent of Man, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rory Lawton in November 2010. The Descent of Man, Part 2, by Charles Darwin. Chapter 13. Secondary Sexual Characters of Birds. Part 3. With respect to the birds which annually undergo a double moult, there are, firstly, some kinds, for instance snipes, swallow plovers, glariole, and curlews, in which the two sexes resemble each other, and do not change colour at any season. I do not know whether the winter plumage is thicker and warmer than the summer plumage, but warmth seems the most probable end attained of a double moult, where there is no change of colour. Secondly, there are birds, for instance, certain species of Totanus and other Gralatores, the sexes of which resemble each other, but in which the summer and winter plumage differ slightly in colour. The difference, however, in these cases is so small that it can hardly be an advantage to them, and it may perhaps be attributed to the direct action of the different conditions to which the birds are exposed during the two seasons. Thirdly, there are many other birds, the sexes of which are alike, but which are widely different in their summer and winter plumage. Fourthly, there are birds, the sexes of which differ from each other in colour, but the females, though moulting twice, retain the same colours throughout the year, whilst the males undergo a change of colour, sometimes a great one, as with certain bustards. Fifthly, and lastly, there are birds, the sexes of which differ from each other in both their summer and winter plumage, but the male undergoes a greater amount of change at each recurrent season than the female, of which the ruff, Machetes pugnax, offers a good instance. With respect to the cause or purpose of the differences in colour between the summer and winter plumage, this may in some instances, as with the ptarmigan, the brown mottled summer plumage of the ptarmigan is of as much importance to it as a protection as the white winter plumage. For in Scandinavia during the spring, when the snow has disappeared, this bird is known to suffer greatly from birds of prey before it has acquired its summer dress. Serve during both seasons as a protection. When the difference between the two plumages is slight, it may perhaps be attributed, as already remarked, to the direct action of the conditions of life but with many birds there can hardly be a doubt that the summer plumage is ornamental, even when both sexes are alike. We may conclude that this is the case with many herons, egrets, etc., for they acquire their beautiful plumes only during the breeding season. Moreover, such plumes, topknots, etc., though possessed by both sexes, are occasionally a little more developed in the male than in the female, and they resemble the plumes and ornaments possessed by the males alone of other birds. It is also known that confinement, by affecting the reproductive system of male birds, frequently checks the development of their secondary sexual characters, but has no immediate influence on any other characters. And I am informed by Mr. Bartlett that eight or nine specimens of the knot, Tringa canutus, retained their unadorned winter plumage in the zoological gardens throughout the year, from which fact we may infer that the summer plumage, though common to both sexes, partakes of the nature of the exclusively masculine plumage of many other birds. From the foregoing facts, more especially from neither sex of certain birds changing colour during either annual moult, or changing so slightly that the change can hardly be of any service to them, and from the females of other species moulting twice, yet retaining the same colours throughout the year, we may conclude that the habit of annually moulting twice has not been acquired in order that the male should assume an ornamental character during the breeding season 
but that the double mould, having been originally acquired for some distinct purpose, has subsequently been taken advantage of in certain cases for gaining a nuptial plumage. It appears at first sight a surprising circumstance that some closely allied species should regularly undergo a double annual moult, and others only a single one. The ptarmigan, for instance, moults twice or even thrice in the year, and the blackcock only once. Some of the splendidly coloured honeysuckers, nectariniae, of India, and some subgenera of obscurely coloured peepits, anthus, have a double, whilst others have only a single annual moult. But the gradations in the manner of moulting, which are known to occur with various birds, show us how species or whole groups might have originally acquired their double annual moult, or having once gained the habit, have again lost it. With certain bustards and plovers the vernal moult is far from complete, some feathers being renewed and some changed in colour. There is also reason to believe that with certain bustards and rail-like birds, which properly undergo a double moult, some of the older males retain their nuptial plumage throughout the year. A few highly modified feathers may merely be added during the spring to the plumage, as occurs with the disc-formed tail-feathers of certain drongos, Vringa, in India, and with the elongated feathers on the back, neck and crest of certain herons. By such steps as these, the vernal moult might be rendered more and more complete, until a perfect double moult was acquired. Some of the birds of paradise retain their nuptial feathers throughout the year, and thus have only a single moult. Others cast them directly after the breeding season, and thus have a double moult. And others again cast them at this season during the first year, but not afterwards, so that these latter species are intermediate in their manner of moulting. There is also a great difference with many birds in the length of time during which the two annual plumages are retained, so that the one might come to be retained for the whole year, and the other completely lost. Thus, in the spring, Machetes pugnax retains his ruff for barely two months. In Natal, the male widow-bird, Chira progne, acquires his fine plumage and long tail-feathers in December or January, and loses them in March, so that they are retained only for about three months. Most species, which undergo a double moult, keep their ornamental feathers for about six months. The male, however, of the wild Gallus bankiva, retains his neck-hackles for nine or ten months, and when these are cast off, the underlying black feathers of the neck are fully exposed to view. But with the domesticated descendant of this species, the neck-hackles of the male are immediately replaced by new ones, so that we here see, as to part of the plumage, a double moult changed under domestication into a single moult. The common drake, Anas boscas, after the breeding season, is well known to lose his male plumage for a period of three months, during which time he assumes that of the female. The male pintail duck, Anas acuta, loses his plumage for the shorter period of six weeks or two months, and Montague remarks that this double moult within so short a time is a most extraordinary circumstance that seems to bid defiance to all human reasoning. But the believer in the gradual modification of species will be far from feeling surprise at finding gradations of all kinds. If the male pintail were to acquire this new plumage within a still shorter period, the new male feathers would almost necessarily be mingled with the old, and both with some proper to the female. And this apparently is the case with the male of a not distantly allied bird, namely the Mergenser serrator, for the males are said to undergo a change of plumage which assimilates them in some measure to the female. By a little further acceleration of the process, the double moult would be completely lost.
Some male birds, as before stated, become more brightly coloured in the spring, not by a vernal moult, but either by an actual change of colour in the feathers, or by their obscurely coloured deciduary margins being shed. Changes of colour thus caused may last for a longer or shorter time. In the Pelicanus onocrotalus, a beautiful rosy tint, with lemon-coloured marks on the breast, overspreads the whole plumage in the spring. But these tints, as Mr. Sclater states, do not last long, disappearing generally in about six weeks or two months after they have been attained. Certain finches shed the margins of their feathers in the spring, and then become brighter coloured, while other finches undergo no such change. Thus, the Fringilla tristis of the United States, as well as many other American species, exhibits its bright colours only when the winter is past, whilst our goldfinch, which exactly represents this bird in habits, and our siskin, which represents it still more closely in structure, undergo no such annual change. But a difference of this kind in the plumage of allied species is not surprising, for with the common linnet, which belongs to the same family, the crimson forehead and breast are displayed only during the summer in England, whilst in Madeira these colours are retained throughout the year. Display by male birds of their plumage Ornaments of all kinds, whether permanently or temporarily gained, are sedulously displayed by the males, and apparently serve to excite, attract, or fascinate the females. But the males will sometimes display their ornaments, when not in the presence of the females, as occasionally occurs with grouse at their bald places, and as may be noticed with the peacock. This latter bird, however, evidently wishes for a spectator of some kind, and, as I have often seen, will show off his finery before poultry or even pigs. All naturalists who have closely attended to the habits of birds, whether in a state of nature or under confinement, are unanimously of opinion that the males take delight in displaying their beauty. Audubon frequently speaks of the male as endeavouring in various ways to charm the female. Mr. Gould, after describing some peculiarities in a male hummingbird, says he has no doubt that it has the power of displaying them to the greatest advantage before the female. Dr. Jordan insists that the beautiful plumage of the male serves to fascinate and attract the female. Mr. Bartlett, at the Zoological Gardens, expressed himself to me in the strongest terms to the same effect. It must be a grand sight in the forests of India, to come suddenly on twenty or thirty peafowl, the males displaying their gorgeous trains, and strutting about in all the pomp of pride before the gratified females. The wild turkey-cock erects his glittering plumage, expands his finely zoned tail and barred wing feathers, and altogether, with his crimson and blue wattles, makes a superb, though to our eyes, grotesque appearance. Similar facts have already been given with respect to grouse of various kinds. Turning to another order, the male Rupicola crocia is one of the most beautiful birds in the world, being of a splendid orange with some of the feathers curiously truncated and plumose. The female is brownish-green, shaded with red, and has a much smaller crest. Sir R. Schomburg has described their courtship. He found one of their meeting places where ten males and two females were present. The space was from four to five feet in diameter, and appeared to have been cleared of every blade of grass, and smoothed as if by human hands. A male was capering to the apparent delight of several others, now spreading its wings, throwing up its head, or opening its tail like a fan, now strutting about with a hopping gait until tired, when it gabbled some kind of note, and was relieved by another. 
Thus three of them successively took the field, and then, with self-approbation, withdrew to rest. The Indians, in order to obtain their skins, wait at one of the meeting places till the birds are eagerly engaged in dancing, and then are able to kill with their poisoned arrows four or five males, one after the other. With birds of paradise, a dozen or more full-plumaged males congregate in a tree to hold a dancing party, as it is called by the natives, and here they fly about, raise their wings, elevate their exquisite plumes, and make them vibrate, and the whole tree seems, as Mr. Wallace remarks, to be filled with waving plumes. When thus engaged, they become so absorbed that a skilful archer may shoot nearly the whole party. These birds, when kept in confinement in the Malay archipelago, are said to take much care in keeping their feathers clean, often spreading them out, examining them, and removing every speck of dirt. One observer, who kept several pairs alive, did not doubt that the display of the male was intended to please the female. The gold and Amherst pheasants, during their courtship, not only expand and raise their splendid frills, but twist them, as I have myself seen, obliquely towards the female on whichever side she may be standing, obviously in order that a large surface may be displayed before her. Mr. T. W. Wood has a full account of this manner of display, by the gold pheasant and by the Japanese pheasant, Fasianus versicolor, and he calls it the lateral or one-sided display. They likewise turn their beautiful tails and tail coverts a little towards the same side. Mr. Bartlett has observed a male polyplectron in the act of courtship, and has shown me a specimen stuffed in the attitude then assumed. The tail and wing feathers of this bird are ornamented with beautiful ocelli, like those of the peacock's train. Now when the peacock displays himself, he expands and erects his tail transversely to his body, for he stands in front of the female, and has to show off, at the same time, his rich blue throat and breast. But the breast of the polyplectron is obscurely coloured, and the ocelli are not confined to the tail feathers. Consequently, the polyplectron does not stand in front of the female, but he erects and expands his tail feathers a little obliquely, lowering the expanded wing on the same side, and raising that on the opposite side. In this attitude, the ocelli over the whole body are exposed at the same time before the eyes of the admiring female, in one grand bespangled expanse. To whichever side she may turn, the expanded wings and the obliquely held tail are turned toward her. The male trogopan pheasant acts in nearly the same manner for he raises the feathers of the body, though not the wing itself, on the side which is opposite to the female, and which would otherwise be concealed, so that nearly all the beautifully spotted feathers are exhibited at the same time. The Argus pheasant affords a much more remarkable case. The immensely developed secondary wing feathers are confined to the male, and each is ornamented with a row of from twenty to twenty-three ocelli, above an inch in diameter. These feathers are so elegantly marked with oblique stripes and rows of spots of a dark colour, like those on the skin of a tiger and leopard combined. These beautiful ornaments are hidden until the male shows himself off before the female. He then erects his tail, and expands his wing feathers into a great, almost upright, circular fan or shield, which is carried in front of the body. The neck and head are held on one side, so that they are concealed by the fan, but the bird, in order to see the female, before whom he is displaying himself, sometimes pushes his head between two of the long wing feathers, as Mr. Bartlett has seen, and then presents a grotesque appearance. This must be a frequent habit with the bird in a state of nature, for Mr. Bartlett and his son, on examining some perfect skin sent from the east, found a place between two of the feathers which was much frayed, as if the head had here frequently been pushed through.
Mr. Wood thinks that the male can also peep at the female on one side, beyond the margin of the fan. The ocelli on the wing feathers are wonderful objects, for they are so shaded that, as the Duke of Argyll remarks, they stand out like bowls lying loosely within sockets. When I looked at the specimen in the British Museum, which is mounted with the wings expanded and trailing downwards, I was, however, greatly disappointed, for the ocelli appeared flat, or even concave. But Mr. Gould soon made the case clear to me, for he held the feathers erect, in the position in which they would naturally be displayed, and now, from the light shining on them from above, each ocellus at once resembled the ornament called a ball and socket. These feathers have been shown to several artists, and all have expressed their admiration at the perfect shading. It may well be asked, could such artistically shaded ornaments have been formed by means of sexual selection? But it will be convenient to defer giving an answer to this question until we treat in the next chapter of the principle of gradation. The foregoing remarks relate to the secondary wing feathers, but the primary wing feathers, which in most gallinaceous birds are uniformly coloured, are in the Argus pheasant equally wonderful. They are of a soft brown tint with numerous dark spots, each of which consists of two or three black dots with the surrounding dark zone. But the chief ornament is a space parallel to the dark blue shaft, which in outline forms a perfect second feather, lying within the true feather. This inner part is coloured of a lighter chestnut, and is thickly dotted with minute white points. I have shown this feather to several persons, and many have admired it even more than the ball and socket feathers, and have declared that it was more like a work of art than of nature. Now these feathers are quite hidden in all ordinary occasions, but are fully displayed, together with the long secondary feathers, when they are all expanded together, so as to form the great fan or shield. The case of the male Argus pheasant is eminently interesting, because it affords good evidence that the most refined beauty may serve as a sexual charm, and for no other purpose. We must conclude that this is the case, as the secondary and primary wing feathers are not at all displayed, and the ball and socket ornaments are not exhibited in full perfection, until the male assumes the attitude of courtship. The Argus pheasant does not possess brilliant colours, so that his success in love appears to depend on the great size of his plumes, and on the elaboration of the most elegant patterns. Many will declare that it is utterly incredible that a female bird should be able to appreciate fine shading and exquisite patterns. It is undoubtedly a marvellous fact that she should possess this almost human degree of taste. He who thinks that he can safely gauge the discrimination and taste of the lower animals may deny that the female Argus pheasant can appreciate such refined beauty, but he will then be compelled to admit that the extraordinary attitudes assumed by the male during the act of courtship, by which the wonderful beauty of his plumage is fully displayed, are purposeless, and this is a conclusion which I for one will never admit. Although so many pheasants and allied gallinaceous birds carefully display their plumage before the females, it is remarkable, as Mr. Bartlett informs me, that this is not the case with the dull-coloured eared and cheer pheasants, Crossoptilon aritum and Physanius valici, so that these birds seem conscious that they have little beauty to display. Mr. Bartlett has never seen the males of either of these species fighting together, though he has not had such good opportunities for observing the cheer as the eared pheasant. Mr. Jenner Weir also finds that all male birds with rich or strongly characterized plumage are more quarrelsome than the dull-colored species belonging to the same groups. The goldfinch, for instance, is far more pugnacious than the linnet, and the blackbird than the thrush. 
those birds which undergo a seasonal change of plumage likewise become much more pugnacious at the period when they are the most gaily ornamented no doubt the males of some obscurely coloured birds fight desperately together but it appears that when sexual selection has been highly influential and has given bright colours to the males of any species it has also very often given a strong tendency to pugnacity we shall meet with nearly analogous cases when we treat of mammals on the other hand with birds the power of song and brilliant colours have rarely been both acquired by the males of the same species but in this case the advantage gained would have been the same namely success in charming the female nevertheless it must be owned that the males of several brilliantly coloured birds have had their feathers specially modified for the sake of producing instrumental music though the beauty of this cannot be compared at least according to our taste with that of the vocal music of many songsters we will now turn to male birds which are not ornamented in any high degree but which nevertheless display during their courtship whatever attractions they may possess these cases are in some respects more curious than the foregoing and have been but little noticed i owe the following facts to mr weir who has long kept confined birds of many kinds including all the british fringillidae and emberizidae the facts have been selected from a large body of valuable notes kindly sent me by him the bullfinch makes his advances in front of the female and then puffs out his breast so that many more of the crimson feathers are seen at once than otherwise would be the case at the same time he twists and bows his black tail from side to side in a ludicrous manner the male chaffinch also stands in front of the female thus showing his red breast and blue bell as the fanciers call his head the wings at the same time being slightly expanded with the pure white bands on the shoulders thus rendered conspicuous the common linnet distends his rosy breast slightly expands his brown wings and tail so as to make the best of them by exhibiting their white edgings we must however be cautious in concluding that the wings are spread out solely for display as some birds do so whose wings are not beautiful this is the case with the domestic cock but it is always the wing on the side opposite to the female which is expanded and at the same time scraped on the ground the male goldfinch behaves differently from all other finches his wings are beautiful the shoulders being black with the dark-tipped wing feathers spotted with white and edged with golden yellow when he courts the female he sways his body from side to side and quickly turns his slightly expanded wings first to one side then to the other with a golden flashing effect mr weir informs me that no other british finch turns thus from side to side during his courtship not even the closely allied male siskin for he would not thus add to his beauty most of the british buntings are plain-coloured birds but in the spring the feathers on the head of the male reed bunting emberiza sconiculus acquire a fine black colour by the abrasion of the dusky tips and these are erected during the act of courtship mr weir has kept two species of amadina from australia the amadina castanotis is a very small and chastely coloured finch with a dark tail white rump and jet black upper tail coverts each of the latter being marked with three large conspicuous oval spots of white this species when courting the female slightly spreads out and vibrates these parti-coloured tail coverts in a very peculiar manner the male amadina lathami behaves very differently exhibiting before the female his brilliantly spotted breast scarlet rump and scarlet upper tail coverts i may here add from dr jordan that the indian bulbul pycnonotus hemorus has its under tail coverts of a crimson colour and these it might be thought could never be well exhibited but the bird when excited often spreads them out laterally so that they can be seen even from above 
the crimson undertail coverts of some other birds as with one of the woodpeckers picus major can be seen without any such display the common pigeon has iridescent feathers on the breast and every one must have seen how the male inflates his breast whilst courting the female thus showing them off to the best advantage one of the beautiful bronze-winged pigeons of australia Ossifaps lofotes behaves as described to me by mr ware very differently the male while standing before the female lowers his head almost to the ground spreads out and raises his tail and half expands his wings he then alternately and slowly raises and depresses his body so that the iridescent metallic feathers are all seen at once and glitter in the sun sufficient facts have now been given to show with what care male birds display their various charms and this they do with the utmost skill whilst preening their feathers they have frequent opportunities for admiring themselves and of studying how best to exhibit their beauty but as all the males of the same species display themselves in exactly the same manner it appears that actions at first perhaps intentional have become instinctive if so we ought not to accuse birds of conscious vanity yet when we see a peacock strutting about with expanded and quivering tail feathers he seems the very emblem of pride and vanity the various ornaments possessed by the males are certainly of the highest importance to them for in some cases they have been acquired at the expense of greatly impeded powers of flight or of running the african nightjar cosmetornis which during the pairing season has one of its primary wing feathers developed into a streamer of very great length is thereby much retarded in its flight although at other times remarkable for its swiftness the unwieldy size of the secondary wing feathers of the male argus pheasant is said almost entirely to deprive the bird of flight the fine plumes of male birds of paradise trouble them during a high wind the extremely long tail feathers of the male widow birds vidua of southern africa render their flight heavy but as soon as these are cast off they fly as well as the females as birds always breed when food is abundant the males probably do not suffer much inconvenience in searching for food from their impeded powers of movement but there can hardly be a doubt that they must be much more liable to be struck down by birds of prey nor can we doubt that the long train of the peacock and the long tail and wing feathers of the argus pheasant must render them an easier prey to any prowling tiger-cat than would otherwise be the case even the bright colours of many male birds cannot fail to make them conspicuous to their enemies of all kinds hence as mr gould has remarked it probably is that such birds are generally of a shy disposition as if conscious that their beauty was a source of danger and are much more difficult to discover or approach than the sombre coloured and comparatively tame females or than the young and as yet unadorned males it is a more curious fact that the males of some birds which are provided with special weapons for battle and which in a state of nature are so pugnacious that they often kill each other suffer from possessing certain ornaments cock-fighters trim the hackles and cut off the combs and gills of their cocks and the birds are then said to be dubbed an undubbed bird as mr tegetmeyer insists is at a fearful disadvantage the comb and gills offer an easy hold to his adversary's beak and as a cock always strikes where he holds when once he has seized his foe he has him entirely in his power even supposing that the bird is not killed the loss of blood suffered by an undubbed cock is much greater than that sustained by one that has been trimmed young turkey cocks in fighting always seize hold of each other's wattles and i presume that the old birds fight in the same manner it may perhaps be objected that the comb and wattles are not ornamental and cannot be of service to the birds in this way but even to our eyes the beauty of the glossy black spanish cock is much enhanced by his white face and crimson comb 
and no one who has ever seen the splendid blue wattles of the male trogopan pheasant distended in courtship can for a moment doubt that beauty is the object gained from the foregoing facts we clearly see that the plumes and other ornaments of the males must be of the highest importance to them and we further see that beauty is even sometimes more important than success in battle end of section fifteen